Sophie's World by Josephine Gardner. Two cultures continued. The only way to avoid floating in a vacuum. Israel. I have no intention of competing with your religion teacher, Sophie. But let us just make a quick summary of Christianity's Jewish background. It all began when God created the world. You can read how that happened on the very first page of the Bible. Then mankind began to rebel against God. Their punishment was that not only Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden, death also came into their world. Man's disobedience to God is a theme that runs right through the Bible. If we further go in the book of Genesis, we read about the flood and Noah's ark. Then we read that God made a covenant with Abraham and his seed. This covenant, or pact, was that Abraham and all of his seed would keep the Lord's commandments. In exchange, God promised to protect all the children of Abraham. This covenant was renewed when Moses was given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai around the year 1200 B.C. At that time, the Israelites had long been held as slaves in Egypt, but with God's help, they were led back to the land of Israel. About 1,000 years before Christ, and therefore long before there was anything called Greek philosophy, we hear of three great kings of Israel. The first was Saul, then came David, and after him came Solomon. Now all these Israelites were united in one kingdom, and under King David especially, they experienced a period of political, military, and cultural glory. When kings were chosen, they were anointed by the people. They thus received the title Messiah, which means the Anointed One. In a religious sense, kings were looked upon as a go-between between God and His people. The king could therefore also be called the Son of God, and the country could be called the Kingdom of God. But long before Israel began to lose its power and the kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom, Israel, and its southern kingdom, Judea. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and it lost all political and religious significance. The southern kingdom fared no better, being conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Its temple was destroyed, and most of the people were carried off to slavery in Babylon. This Babylonian captivity lasted until 539 B.C. When people were permitted to return to Judaism, and the great, great temple was restored, but for the rest of the period before the birth of Christ, the Jews continued to live under foreign domination. The question Jews constantly asked themselves was why the kingdom of David was destroyed, and why catastrophe after catastrophe rained down on them, for God had promised to hold Israel in His hand. But the people had also promised to keep God's commandments, and gradually became widely accepted that God was punishing Israel for her disobedience. From around 750 B.C., 
Various prophets began to come forward preaching God's wrath over Israel for not keeping his commandments. One day God would hold a day of judgment over Israel, they said. We call prophecies like these doomsday prophecies. In the course of time, there came other prophets who preached that God would redeem a chosen few of his people and send them a prince of peace or a king of the house of David. He would restore the old kingdom of David and the people would have a future of prosperity. The people that walked in darkness will see a great light, said the prophet Isaiah, and they will dwell in the land of shadows of death. Upon them hath the light shined. We call prophecies like these prophecies of redemption. To sum it up, the children of Israel lived happily under King David. But later on, when their situation was deordinated, their prophets began to proclaim that there would one day come a new king of the house of David. This Messiah, or Son of God, would redeem the people, restore Israel to its greatness, and found a kingdom of God. Jesus I assume you are still with me, Sophie. The key words are Messiah, Son of God, and Kingdom of God. At first, it was all taken politically. In the time of Jesus, there were a lot of people who imagined that there would come a new Messiah. In the sense of political, military, and religious leader of the Calabar of King David, this Savior was thus looked upon as a national deliverer who had put an end to the suffering of the Jews under Roman domination. Well and good, but there were also many people who were more farsighted. For the past 200 years, there had been prophets who believed that the promised Messiah would be the savior of the whole world. He would not simply free the Israelites from foreign yoke. He would save all mankind from sin and blame, and not least, from death. The longing for salvation in the sense of redemption was widespread all over the Hellenistic world. So come along Jesus of Nazareth. He was not only the only man to ever have come forward as the promised Messiah. Jesus also uses its words, Son of God, the Kingdom of God, and Redemption. In doing this, he maintains the link with the old prophets. He rides into Jerusalem and allows himself to be acclaimed by the crowds as the savior of the people, thus playing directly on the way the old kings were installed by the characteristic throne accession ritual. He also allows himself to be atoined by the people. The time is refueled, he says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. But here is a very important part. Jesus distinguished himself from the other messias by stating clearly that he was not a military or political rebel. His mission was much greater. He preached salvation and God's forgiveness for everyone. To the people he met on his way, he said, Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Handing out the remission of sins in this way was totally unheard of. And what was even worse, 
He addressed God as Father Abba. This was completely unprecedented in the Jewish community at that time. It was therefore not long before there arose a wave of protest against him among the scribes. So here was the situation: a great many people at the time Jesus were waiting for a Messiah who would reestablish the kingdom of God with a great flourish of trumpets. In other words, with fire and sword. The expression "kingdom of God" was indeed a recurring theme in the preachings of Jesus, but in a much broader sense, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is loving thy neighbor, compassion for the weak and the poor, and forgiveness of those who have erred. This was a dramatic shift in the meaning of old age expression and warlike overtones. People were expecting a military leader who would soon proclaim the establishment of the kingdom of God, and along comes Jesus in a kirtle and sandals, telling them that the kingdom of God, or a new covenant, is that you must love thy neighbor as thyself. But that was not all, Sophie. He said he also said that we must love our enemies. When they strike us, we must not retaliate. We must even turn on the other cheek. We must forgive, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Jesus himself demonstrated that he was not above talking to harlots, corrupt usurers, and the politically subversive. But he went even further. He said that a good for nothing who has squandered off in all his father's inheritance. Or a humble publican who has pocketed official funds is righteous before God when he repents and prays for forgiveness. So great is God's mercy. But hang on, he went a step further. Jesus said that such sinners were more righteous in the eyes of God and more deserving of God's forgiveness than the spotless Pharisees who went on flaunting their virtue. Jesus pointed out that nobody can earn God's mercy; we cannot redeem ourselves, as many of the Greeks believed. The severe ethical demands made by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount were not only to teach what the will of God meant, but to also show that no man is righteous in the eyes of God. God's mercy is boundless, but we have to turn to God and pray for His forgiveness. I shall leave a more thorough study of Jesus and his teachings to your religion teacher. He will have quite a task. I hope he will succeed in showing what an exceptional man Jesus was. In an ingenious way, he used the language of his time to give the old war cries a totally new and broader content. It's not surprising that he ended on the cross. His radical teachings, tidings of redemption, were at odds with so many interests and power factors that he had to be removed. When we talked about Socrates, we saw how dangerous it could be to appeal to people's reason. With Jesus, we see how dangerous it can be to demand unconditional brotherly love and unconditional forgiveness. Even in the world today. We can see how mighty powers could come apart at the seams when confronted with simple demands for peace, love, food for the poor, and amnesty for the enemies of the state. You may recall how incensed Plato was that the most righteous man in Athens had to forfeit his life. According to Christian teachings, 
Jesus was the only righteous person who had ever lived. Nevertheless, he was condemned to death. Christians say he died for the sake of humanity. This is what Christians usually call the passion of Christ. Jesus was the suffering servant who bore the sins of humanity in order that we could be atoned and saved from God's wrath. Paul. A few days after Jesus had been crucified and buried, rumors spread that he had risen from his grave. He thereby proved that he was no ordinary man. He truly was the Son of God. We could say that the Christian Church was founded on Easter morning with the rumors of the reconstruction of Jesus. This is already established by Paul. And if Christ Christ not be risen, then this our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Now all mankind could hope for the reconstruction of the body, for it was to save us that Jesus was crucified. But dear Sophie, remember that from a Jesus point, Jesus. Jewish point of view, there were no question of the immortality of the soul or any form of transmigration. That was Greek, and therefore an Indo-European thought. According to Christianity, there is nothing in man, no soul, for example, that is itself immortal. Although the Christian Church believes in the reconstruction of the body and eternal life. It is by God's miracle that we are saved from death and damnation. It is neither through our own merit nor through any natural or innate ability. So the early Christians began to preach the glad tidings of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Through his meditation, the kingdom of God was about to become a reality. Now the entire world could be won for Christ. The word Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, the Anointed One. A few years after the death of Jesus, the Pharisee Paul converted to Christianity. Through his many missionary journeys across the whole of the Greco-Roman world, he made Christianity a worldwide religion. We hear this in the Acts of the Apostles. Paul's preaching and guidance for the Christians is known to us in the form of many epistles written by him for the early Christian congregations. He then turns up in Athens. He wanders straight into the city square of the philosophic capital, and then it is said that his spirit was stirred in him. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, he visited the Jewish synagogue in Athens, and conversed with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They took him up in Areopagus Hill and asked him, "May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange to our ears. We know therefore what these things mean." Can you imagine it, Sophie? A Jew suddenly appears in the Athenian marketplace and starts talking about a savior who was hung on a cross and later rose from his grave. Even from this visit of Paul in Athens, we can sense a coming collision between Greek philosophy and the doctrine of Christian redemption. But Paul clearly succeeds in getting the Athenians to listen to him. From the Areopagus. 
and beneath the proud temples of the Acropolis, he makes the following speech. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For I passed by, and behold your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwells in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood of all nations for men to dwell on the face of earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they seek the Lord, if happily they should feel after him and find him, though he might not be far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain as much as your poets have said, for we are his offspring. For as much then we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is on to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world righteousness by that man who he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he has hath raised from the dead. Paul in Athens, Sophie. Christianity had begun to penetrate the Greco-Roman world as if something else, something completely different from Epicurean, Stoic, or Neoplatonic philosophy. But Paul, nevertheless, finds some common ground in this culture. He emphasizes that the search for God is natural to all men. This was not new to the Greeks. But what was new in Paul's preaching is that God has also revealed himself to mankind and has in truth reached out to them. So he is no longer a philosophic God that people can approach with their understanding. Neither is he an image of gold or silver or stone. There are plenty of those on both the Acropolis down in the marketplace. He is a God that dwells not in temples made in hands. He is a personal God who inter- intervenes in the course of history and dies on the cross for the sake of mankind. When Paul made a speech on the Acropolis, we read in the Acts of the Apostles, some mocked him for what he said about the reconstruction from the dead. But others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. There were also some who followed Paul and began to believe in Christianity. One of them, it is worth noting, was a woman named Damaris. Women were against the most fervent converts to Christianity. So Paul continued his missionary activities. A few decades after the death of Jesus, Christian congregations were already established in all the important Roman and Greek cities in Athens, in Rome, in Alexandria, in Ephesus, and in Corinth. In the space of three to four hundred years, the entire Hellenistic world would become Christian.
the creed. It was not only as missionary that Paul came to a fundamental significance to, for Christianity. He also had a great influence within the Christian congregations. There was a widespread need for spiritual guidance. One important question in the early years was was after Jesus was whether non-Jews could become Christians without first becoming Jews. Should a Greek, for instance, observe dietary laws, Paul believed it to be unnecessary. Christianity was more than a Jewish sect. It addressed itself to everybody in a universal message of salvation. The old covenant between God and Israel had been replaced by the new covenant, in which Jesus had established between God and mankind. However, Christianity was not only the only religion at that time. We have seen how Hellenism was influenced by a fusion of religions. It was thus vitally necessary for the church to step forward with the concise summary of the Christian doctrine, both in order to distance itself from other religions and to prove sin within the Christian church. Therefore, the first creed was established, summing up the central Christians' dogmas or tenets. One such central tenet was that Jesus was both God and man. He was not the Son of God on the strength of his actions alone. He was God himself. But he was also a true man who had shared the misfortune of mankind and had actually suffered on the cross. This may sound like a contradiction, but the message of the church precisely that God became man. Jesus was not a demigod, which was half man, half God. Belief in such demigods was quite widespread in Greek and Hellenistic religions. The church taught that Jesus was perfect God, perfect man. Postscript. Let me try to say a few words about how this all hangs together, my dear Sophie. As Christianity makes its entry into the Greco-Roman world, we are witnessing a dramatic meeting of two cultures. We are also seeing one of history's greatest cultural revolutions. We are about to step out of antiquity. Almost 1,000 years have passed since the days of the early Greek philosophers. Ahead of us, we have the Christian Middle Ages, which has lasted for about 1,000 years. The German poet Goethe once said that he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living from hand to mouth. I don't want you to end up in such a sad state. I will do what I can to acquaint you with your historical roots. It is the only way to become a human being. It is the only way to become more than a naked ape. It is the only way to avoid floating in a vacuum. It is the only way to become a human being. It is the only way to become more than a naked ape. Sophie sat for a while, staring into the garden through a little hole in the hedge. She was beginning to understand why it was so important to know about her historical roots. 
It had certainly been important to the children of Israel. She herself was just an ordinary person. But if she knew her historical roots, she would be less than ordinary. She would not be living on this planet for more than a few years. But if the history of mankind was her own history, in a way, she was a thousand years old. Mm-hmm.